Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In recognition of International Women's Day 2018, Amy Amoroso spoke with Maribel Alvarez. Maribel Alvarez is an anthropologist, folklorist, curator, and community arts expert who has documented the practice of more than a dozen of the country's leading, emerging, and alternative artistic organizations. She currently serves as executive director of the Southwest Folklife Alliance. Here is their conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. First, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're executive director at Southwest Folklife Alliance, but you do so many things. Can you share with us all of them? Well, my real job, <laughs> the one that pays the bills, is I'm a researcher at the University Southwest Center, as well as a associate professor in the School of Anthropology, where I teach courses on food and cultural um, dynamics of the border and cultural understanding, general sort of cultural literacy, if you will. And then uh, affiliated with the university is the Southwest Folklife Alliance, which of course has a long history of affiliation with the university in its previous form, which was Tucson Meet Yourself. We are the producers of Tucson Meet Yourself and about 25 other initiatives in partnership with community agencies, partners, um, tribal nations. So yes, it's it's a busy schedule. And you're a mother? I am a mother. I am I have I became a mother late in life through circumstances and I have a four year old and a seven year old. So tell us a little bit of your background immigrating to the US from Cuba. What was that like? Well, my family has always had a very interesting uh, story of the Cuban migration that is not very common. Um, I left Cuba when I was seven years old in 1969. Lucky for me, um, I had come from a family that had a long history of revolutionary struggle that goes back to the 1930s. So my parents were actually living in New York in the 1950s. I was destined to be born in Queens, which means that I would have a very different accent today. Right. Uh, in the 1950s, they were actively promoting and organizing, among other Cubans, on behalf of the Cuban Revolution. And my family back in Cuba was part of the revolution. So lo and behold, in 1961 or 1960, they went back to Cuba after the revolution. So when all the Cubans were living in exile, mass exiles, we were like the salmon uh, swimming mm -hmm. upstream, and my father returned to Cuba because the revolution had won. And that's why I was born in Cuba in 1961. But that fateful year where I was born was also the year that the Cuban Revolution had a sort of a, an alignment with the Soviets. Mm -hmm. And my father and my family's history had been very much on the socialist uh, populist side of things and not necessarily with institutional Communist Party alignment. And they found that very disturbing. So my father uh, decided that he wasn't going to stay in Cuba under that alignment with the Russians, which I say is an interesting story, only in the sense that the Cuban Revolution has, of course, been only known in its large strokes, right? The anti-imperialist 
the United States, the embargo, but not within the same struggles that happened inside the Cuban Revolution itself for the sort of predominance of whether it was going to be a more socialist democratic model or a more Soviet-aligned model based on Cold War politics, of course. So I am born in the midst of all of those big things. Wow. And, um, and went to school in Cuba up to second grade. So left in 1969, and we uh, settled in Puerto Rico, where my father had uh, a brother. And so I grew up in Puerto Rico from age seven till about I was 18. What was your father's profession? My dad was a plumber, and um, my mother was a housewife. My parents were those kind of working class folks that are really interested in ideas Mm -hmm. and in uh, being worldly and in being uh, really appreciating intellectual activity and always foster that in us. Uh, I had had um, aunts that were teachers, librarians. My father was um, always left an impression on me because he was such a smart guy, such a smart, naturally gifted, curious sort of problem solver. And, and yet, you know, he, he had a blue collar occupation. It was yeah. always uh, really fascinating to learn uh, that side of how he managed his own sense of identity, mm-hmm. um, being um, a working class Cubano in exile. And when you moved to Puerto Rico, did you feel the cultural difference? And what was that like? Yeah, so because of our political history, we were not exactly um, insiders of the Cuban exile community, mm. which was pretty much a anti-socialist, anti-revolutionary community. This led me to form incredible alliances with my Puerto Rican peers in mm-hmm. a different way. And funny enough, this is what eventually leads me to the Chicano arts movement when I become come of age and go to California. In the 19, uh, in 1980, I go to school in California, and I find my sense of community in activism, uh, mostly Mexican-American Chicano artists, activists. Uh, perhaps a little bit strange thinking that the majority of people have an idea of the Cuban exile as a very conservative right-wing community, and here I was sort of not fitting that mold but also really hungry for community, for finding a sense of solidarity with other people. Yes, although I can gather you haven't fit a mold probably all of your life. You know, Edward Said, the Palestinian scholar, always said that, you know, the exile lives that precarious existence of finding him or herself always in a place that is never going to be home, and you can't ever, ever go back. But then inventing home in many different settings, and that's how I feel in Tucson, for example. I feel at home here in a sort of spiritual, deep-rooted way that almost like uh, baffles the mind, but it feels really authentic from the heart. I can totally relate to that as a new Tucsonan. So in light of the Me Too and Time's Up movements recently, they've gained so much traction in the last year What do you think that means for International Women's Day? Well, it's so interesting that these questions um, of culture have always been um, cultural identity, cultural politics, identity politics, have always been um, tense to the degree that they have always overlooked gender 
mm. uh, st structures of power or even sexual politics of power. So in a lot of ways, you see this uh, construction of what belonging to a community is, to a particular movement in a lot of ways, overlooking those sensibilities that were not right among some of the movements. I know patriarchy is a pretty universal yes. thing. It doesn't mm -hmm. only belong in um, white Anglo-Saxon settings. You right. know, it happens. It's a, it's a world phenomenon. So this movement um, brings to light things that people and women and in all over the world have had to deal with all their life, my mother included, despite all of the admiration for uh, our cultural pride and heritage, it, it also came with a package of patriarchy, of gender power dynamics, of sexualization of young women at an early age, things that it's hard to talk about and not feel like you're betraying some sort of sense of your cultural identity, especially mm -hmm. as a minority community. So I welcome this implosion of conversation and topics that crack open things that for too long have been hidden. Were you on Facebook when people began posting the Me Too hashtags? There was like a two-day period where I felt like every single person I know posted Me Too including myself. And it was really eye-opening. You knew it, but mm -hmm. then it became out there in the open and changing the way we talk about things. Was that your experience too? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it took everybody by surprise. And it, and it was... It was not a surprise for those who have been advocating and working in this field. Um, in part of my previous life, I, I worked for Planned Parenthood and had to be um, involved in public affairs, public speaking. And I know that there are stories about women and women's choices and women's lives that... Um, even to this day, struggle to get any attention or credibility. I was watching on Netflix the other day the documentary on Anita Hill. Oh, yes. And, um, I saw that too recently. And I remember when that was happening, of course, many of us do, but watching the documentary and the, and the footage of her hearing before the mm -hmm. Senate committee um, of all white males asking her incredulous questions about whether it was even possible that such a respectable man would have engaged in such crass behavior. And then seeing her face as she was enduring all by herself, all of those questions of those men, and then flash forward to 2018, 2017, and then you think, my goodness, you know, that was bravery. That it was. was uh, and we, I don't think, fully recognized it as a nation for what it was. I completely agree. I completely agree. And there's new stuff coming out. There's an article interviewing Monica Lewinsky mm. recently, and people are looking at that in a different light as well. You know that a movement is onto something really powerful when one of the things that it does is it helps us to begin questioning the things we thought we knew, mm -hmm. right? We thought we knew about women's rights and harassment and job discrimination. We thought we knew. But then here are all these unspoken scripts that were always even be more damaging. And the fact that that's in the open now and still intersected by race and, 
and, and empower inequalities. Black women, Native American women are not in the center of that conversation mm-hmm. to the degree that they should be. Uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, migrant women have been experiencing sexual violence for decades. And so, yeah, there's a bit of a sense like, wow, late coming to this issue when it's been real in so many communities, but I don't dwell there. I don't think that it does us any good to dwell on, on the fact that even the discourse of protest has it inherent inequalities in it. Mm-hmm. I think I think we just work through that. Yeah. We work through it. Yeah, we have we to be honest it. with each other, with women of color have to be honest with white women. White women have to be honest with white women. Yes. <laughs> have to just, you know, we now, now we can't step back and say, okay, well, because of this is difficult between among us, let's not talk about it. We just have to work through it. Agreed. You are listening to a conversation with Amy Amoroso, an executive director of the Southwest Folklife Alliance, Maribel Alvarez, in recognition of International Women's Day 2018 on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. So the theme this year from the UN International Women's Day is Time is Now, Rural and Urban Activists Transforming Women's Lives. I know that you are very involved in a bunch of local projects here through your work with Southwest Folklife Alliance. Do you have any stories of local women's activism that you're seeing in preserving folklife you'd like to share? Yes, absolutely. A couple of really interesting things we've been involved with has been a group of women potters in the Tohono Autumn Nation that we've been sort of indirectly supporting that have come together to revive some of the pottery traditions uh, of the autumn people and have kind of... continue to meet and learn from each other in first an apprentice model that we were able to support through our Master Apprentice Awards. And um, that seems to be having some residual sort of values in the recent Tohono Autumn Rodeo. We'd received a communication that some of those same women were able to revive the the race with the Oya or the pots running on their heads. Oh, and wow. that some of those pots were made by some of the people involved in this. So there's a residual value that it started with pottery and now it's about cultural performance and it's about social memory. That has been pretty... Um, need to see and and that women are willing and ready. I think there's a lot more to be done in entrepreneurial support for women in the reservation and in communities, poor communities. With our project working in La Doce Barrio Foodways, at the end of the project, after one year of doing ethnographic mapping and interviews, we're able to incubate a small project that is having allowing some women who dream to have a catering business of their traditional home-cooked meals. They are now successfully booking catering engagements and testing something that was really kind of seemed far out of their potential only a few months ago. So we begin to see that uh, a lot more of those initiatives. And I know that working in partnership with the YWCA, for example, and they're building a kitchen that will be open for women entrepreneurs uh, down in uh, South Tucson. Great. Um, so there's a lot of really wonderful things that are putting resources into women's uh, hands to, to do for themselves. 
it's been my experience when a group of women gathers and you're united in making something, there's something really special there that happens and there's a lot of conversation that happens. Are you seeing this with... Oh, yes. It's, in fact, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's also, uh, you've probably seen the post about a, a group of Syrian women who are doing a, a baking and some pastries in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And of course, Iskashita has always been around empowering women in their creation of um, local products. And uh, recently, the Southwest Folklife Alliance, as part of our end-of-life track of of work, uh, had a gathering with 40 women who are Muslim, talking about the meaning of of end-of-life from the perspective of uh, Islam. And I was uh, happy to be one of the note-takers in one of the tables. And I cannot tell you, Amy, how much I learned in just the span of two hours over, over a meal. And these women that we think we know, we recognize them, we see them in the street wearing their their coverings on their head, and and we don't know them. (laughs) We don't know them because we haven't had the times to talk with them, to fellowship, to to sit down and break a meal, to to see that the incredible role that many of them are exercising as leaders in their own communities and still within the parameters of their of their religious practice. So it gave me a real sense of what is possible to do. And I was really surprised too that at the gathering of the 40 women, uh, there were some young women who were very much not, not involved in a strictly religious practice, but who are still coming from Muslim families and sort mm-hmm. of navigating that sort of Americanization, if you will, of their identities in this country. Again, you're right. (laughs) Got a group of women, and first you're going to get some really good food, and then you're going to get some really good stories. But there's a depth there to those conversations. What is your hope for young women regarding women's rights, equality, and gender parity in the coming years? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Uh, Well, I am the the mother of two two young girls and one of one of my girls is a uh, gender creative so she um she is a girl who has a lot of things about boys that she likes and as i always joke with people i say you know i'm teaching her to be powerful and to be use her words uh, to say no, to understand their bodies and their boundaries. Uh, but just in case, I'm also teaching them karate. <laughs> 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 just in case that the discursive power doesn't quite come through. Uh, and I say this to them, even at, even at Mariana at seven years old, we have this conversation and I say, you know, first use your words and be, be forceful and say what you want. And But if something gets in the way and people are not listening to you, be powerful in your body, mm-hmm. you know? Be powerful in your body. Know that you can uh, defend yourself, that you can be smart about how to move through the world. And that's probably one of the things that I I think most about is the sense of safety. I know my kids are growing up in a world with uh, their two moms and their friends and families and their beautiful teachers and mm-hmm. the school system where we are. And I feel like they have a sense of safety in the world. And yet every day I'm thinking, but the world is not really safe. So how do I balance preparing them out a little bit out of the, the cocoon of safety and beautiful love in which they're growing? 
to realities that are still developing in sort of less felicitous patterns outside of their little universe. That's always a hard one for parents, I think. Yeah. And you cannot be telling them the world is ugly and messed up. But then on the other one, on the other hand, you don't want them to be unprepared right. when they have to face that by themselves when they become teenagers or go to college. So I, I don't think I have the answer yet, but I think a lot about that. I have a great story when I went with my daughter, my seven-year-old, to see Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking, because I believe that popular culture could be very helpful to, to educate kids. They are they're surrounded by it. As long as you are part of the conversation, it's not they're just not absorbing it by isolation in their own rooms, in their own right. little electronic world, but that you're engaging. Oh, what is that character? What mm -hmm. does he do? What does she say? So we left the theater and, and I said, what was, did you notice in the movie something that you and I have talked about before that kind of was in the movie? And she thought, and of course, at first didn't know what I was talking about with my abstract question. <laughs> and then I said, uh, what about the bad guy? Who was the bad guy in the movie? And then her eyes sort of lit up and she said, oh, mama, you mean that the bad guy didn't at first look like the bad guy. Interesting. They thought that he was a good guy. So the bad guys don't always look like bad guys. And I was like, bingo. <laughs> yes, exactly what we've been talking about. So using the movies and the, you know, Wonder Woman sort of excitement to build a little bit of that education. Little pieces like that. You do it appropriately, right, for the age and mm -hmm. what they can handle. But I do believe we have to be, to speak to kids with reality and with truthfulness about the world being complicated. Thank you for sharing that. I have one last question and maybe then we can expound a little bit. What female music artists are you listening to right now? <laughs> well, I've been thinking a lot about the wonderful Cuban singer Ama uh, Omara Portuondo because she is getting very old and she, of course, was part of the Buena Vista Social Club oh, yes. phenomenon yes. and recorded her own album, which is just stunningly beautiful. And She's still singing, and she must be in her very late 80s. Recently, someone shared a video uh, of her singing with Natalia Lefourquet, mm -hmm. and it's, she's sitting down. She can't even, like, stand up anymore, uh, Omara. And, um, and she, she still has that incredible voice, and they're, they're doing this. Is a, I think Natalia's album called Musa or Muse, and, and it was just beautiful in every single way. It's sort of recorded in an intimate setting in a living room and they're sharing one of the old Latin American sort of ballads together. Uh, and I started thinking, what am I going to do the day that Omara Portondo is no longer with us? Mm. Because she means a lot to me in my connection with Cuba, Yes, my connection with strong women. Uh, and then as an ambassador, because as part of, she was the only woman really sort of highlighted in the Buena Vista social mm -hmm. club phenomenon. And Americans and people all over the world came to know her. And that just couldn't make me any happier. I was just delighted that now she was a household name for many. I was talking with Amanda the other day about the history of International Women's Day. Do you have any thoughts around that? I think that we 
we all became we all became skeptical at some point. I don't know when that happened. Was it after you know the 1990s as we began the new century about all of these day off things, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's you know or African history African American History Month of, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month or Day of International Women's Day. I think that that there was a certain shift in the culture that began to devalue gestures as superficial. And in a lot of ways, I can see that that was a moment of coming to push a little bit further because we have a culture that is, I mean, the general culture of capitalism is so incredibly adaptive. Everything that it sees, it can it can incorporate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sooner or later, it can absorb it, digest it, and then give it back to you in a different form. It's an incredibly hungry and adaptive machine. So I think that it's good that every once in a while we say, ah, oh, but really, is Women's Day only one day, you know, <laughs> or... But on the other hand, I think that we forget when we go to that extreme of the critique, we forget that culture is nothing but gestures signaling to each other all the time the things that are important to us. We do that through language. We do that through dress. We do that through food. That's what we do. (laughs) So I believe that there's something about special days that are determined and are called out as days of celebration that are play a symbolic ritual in reminding us of something that is important. So I think that pendulum in the culture swings, one, being skeptical of the gestures and of the spectacles and then being aware that they can actually deliver a message. I don't see that necessarily as something negative. I think it's just the evolution of movements. So I think with International Women's Day, there, there was a time when I was in college in the 1980s where the entire university will be galvanized by women's activities and workshops of all kinds. And then you're right. Then it was just like, oh, here we go again, yeah. the superficial gesture. And then I think now we're in a time when we're beginning to see a little bit of a deeper understanding that it's important to continue to fight for the moments that dramatize. Yes, in an ephemeral way, only for 24 hours or to submit yourself. That's kind of how we justified a lot of what we do. We say, absolutely, the world is not a whole bunch of people of color gathering around and sharing food and making money, you know, every day and getting along and dancing on the streets. Of course not. The world is not like that all the time. But the fact that we can dramatize that it could be that way for 72 hours it's kind of how we believe that we're making a contribution not only to social practice of equity, but to the imagination of equity. How do we imagine that women can be leaders in the world? It's still a really important question. Now, we also know so much more now. We know that just the category woman alone will not carry all the water. Right. <laughs> right? right. We Womanhood connected to values of equity and diversity and social justice is better than womanhood connected to just a traditional notion of conservative holding your place. So yeah, we now know more. So great. (laughs) Uh, Who was it that said that beautiful quote? Is it um, Maya Angelou who said, uh, you do what you can and then when you know better, you do better, right? Yes. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And we really appreciate you coming in and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us. Oh, my God. It's such a pleasure. We love KXCI. And uh, such a, I can't even believe that you would find interesting some of the things that are so um, much a part of just my life and who I am. So thank you for this wonderful conversation. Our pleasure. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a conversation with Amy Amoroso and Executive Director of the Southwest Folklife Alliance, Maribel Alvarez, in recognition of International Women's Day 2018. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shogger.